This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Assembling Ability Lists. Criterion Essentials. Robert W. Chambers. And the Book of Jasher. Battling spellcasters throw down in God's Forge. From Atlas Games, the publisher of Gloom, Once Upon a Time, and Ars Magica. In God's Forge, you roll, re-roll, and combine dice to summon creations and cast spells. Be the last wizard standing. Or at least the least dead wizard. At the end of the game. Because having remains to send home to your family counts as victory in our book. God's Forge is available May 1st at your friendly local game store. Learn more about the game at atlas-games.com slash godsforge. Or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the Gaming Hut. And here on the Gaming Hut, we have a character sheet. And right there it says, dice, thumping, coming alive, and cuisine, because that's our skill list for the Gaming Hut. But that skill list, while ample for our needs in the hut, may not be ample for your needs in a game, because here we're going to talk about building the skill list, which is sort of the DNA, maybe, of your of your game in a way that a lot of people maybe don't appreciate. Robin, I think you and I had this conversation uh, a while ago, and we're having it again. Am I right? Right. I, th- I think this is. I think we were talking about this, and I wrote it down as a thing to discuss. So, yeah. So, any game in which uh, skills are a big deal. And of course, there are iterations of uh, good old D and D in which uh, skills are uh, are but an afterthought if they exist at all. Um, but anyone in, in which your character is largely defined by skills, the core activity of your game is going to be embedded in the list of skills that you provide uh, to the players when you're designing the game. And so, there's a bunch of different questions that you confront, and a game built on the same engine can answer those questions in different ways. So. Uh, for example, uh, some of the gumshoe games have very lengthy involved ability lists with very fine-grained specialties, uh, and the Esoterrorist being the first gumshoe game was a game that consciously uh, I chose to have lots of different finely variegated abilities because the idea is it's a techno-thriller with magic and the occult in it. And in techno-thrillers, uh, the characters... Uh, like to talk a lot about their super highly specialized abilities and how they're using them in order to get information. So rather than there just being one forensics ability, uh, which uh, later games sometimes have, there's a whole bunch of different forensic abilities. And so that implies that uh, when somebody needs to uh, run a crucial test to find out uh, what this slime is, that which test you run and who runs it becomes a bigger deal in the world of the exoterrorists because it assumes that there'll be a bunch of people on the team who have that ability and you want to sort of niche protect within that. Right. It's like Bones where they all have forensics, but they all have their own special forensics ability. Exactly. And so uh, the, the first question is how specialized is the core activity of the game uh, because if it is very specialized as it is on Bones, you then to need to find... Uh, you know, gradations within that, and and that's where your skill list comes from. Uh, if, however, 
the range of possible characters pursuing the core activity of your game is very broad, and rather you have, you know, the butt-kicking guy and the forensics guy and the talkative uh, person and so forth, that uh, you then can have, you then have broader, uh, less finely sliced skills. But again, you want to make sure that there's at least some range of abilities, right? You don't want uh, mostly to just have, oh, talking as an ability right. or that you want to break out persuasion into a bunch of different skills because you also want to ask yourself, is this something that I want to leave to a specialist within the group or that everybody should be swapping off doing in their own sort of specialized way? And so, uh, for example, in the Yellow King, I made sure it has many fewer abilities, but every uh, character uh, archetype uh, has one different means of persuasion and talking to people because no matter which uh, iteration of that setting you're playing in, talking to people is one of the most important things right. about playing that game. And now the other sort of version of that is that in Fall of Delta Green, building on the choice that Greg made in Delta Green role-playing game, I decided to leave stealth as its own very broad skill on the theory that everyone will be doing it, but it is never the important core activity. And so by letting everyone just dump points into stealth versus sneak, hide, lockpick, uh, infiltrate security systems, blah, blah, blah. Everyone can do it. It doesn't have to be a big breaker if, uh, someone's like, oh, I can't break into a, in, into a locked room. Well, of course you can. You have any points in stealth, you're good. And then so the, the, the ability is so common, but not core, if that's the way I'm, we're looking at it, that everyone should have it, which means it should be as broad and generic as possible, not that it should be broken down into a zillion different subways. And if you want to provide a character note, you can say, how are you stealthing your way into this room? But it doesn't super matter uh, because the characters are differentiated, A, by how do they get what they want and what uh, sort of uh, real-world knowledge are they bringing to be destroyed by the by the mythos. Um, you're also going to be dealing with a range of different tastes of players so that some players really like to have a lot of fine-grained different abilities because that just feels crunchy. It feels like there's right. more stuff to inter interact with, more building blocks that, that, to get your hands on and, and play with. And so, you know, that, that having uh, or, or a sense of simulation that it's like, well, right. um, I want a character who's good at hearing but not uh, so great at spotting things, and I, I want a way of modeling that. Whereas right. uh, other players are, I don't want to keep track of all this stuff. I just want a general sense danger ability that can, you know, that I can describe however I want, and that if I want to have a character who's better at hearing stuff than seeing stuff, I'm going to say that to you as the GM and hope that you will mostly describe the trouble that I sense in terms of uh, stuff that I hear. And so... Uh, again, you're, uh, as a designer, cognizant of the fact that there are, are different tastes. And uh, some people really want a nice full uh, character sheet with lots of stuff on it. And uh, other people want a nice spare character sheet with a few things that they can remember. Group A will look at a, uh, a spare character sheet and go, oh, that's, this game is, is this a story game? <laughs> or they will say... This game is ridiculously abstract, and I don't feel like I'm playing an individual in it. Yes, whereas uh, the other group will look at a big uh, sheet with a lot of abilities and go, well, this is too much stuff to remember. Can't this be simpler? So right. however you set about iterating the core activity of your game, you also realize that you're going to have 
a range of responses to what you do and that there are uh, going to be different preferences uh, within gamers at large and within individ any individual group in terms of how uh, you slice the complexity of abilities. Right. And when, when we did Vampire, we knew that we could only have, uh, at maximum, 27 skills, nine for each of the three categories, you know, uh, mental, social, and um, uh, physical. And so figuring out which skills you want in a game that, in theory, anyone could be anyone. So you might be a vampire forensic scientist, or you might be a vampire uh, ancient uh, a primitive screwhead nobleman. Any number of things might be relevant. So bracketing those almost becomes a matter of, uh, like you say, uh, what's important in the game. And so because in vampire society, etiquette is super important, as it has been in many human societies in the past, uh, that breaks out into its own skill, even though other systems maybe wouldn't bother with etiquette. They would just say, oh, well, obviously you're being nice. That's what getting knowledge is. And so they, they would break that out and it wouldn't be a thing. And so building that skill set comes to not just how many skills can people keep track of, um, but what skill tells you about the setting. And for example, when you first opened Call of Cthulhu, a lucky opener of Call of Cthulhu, you were running your eye down the skill list as we all did. And you, and your eye was stopped by uh, the words library use because that was not a skill that happened in the past. And suddenly there's a game that is so believes library use is so important that it's its own skill. And while Call of Cthulhu being a descendant of BRP had a fairly robust skill list anyway, just the presence of something called library use was already a, a moment. And then the presence of, you know, psychotherapy was like, oh, my God, what, what's going on in this game? And so there was a lot of, of of informational meat about the setting that was in that skill list and delivered by the by the game to the player. Uh, early Call of Cthulhu, for example, had a zillion different weapon skills, again, a heritage from RuneQuest, but one that has the advantage of making it very, very hard to build a combat god because you have to dump lots of points into both fist and kick and into machine gun and pistol and rifle and just endless and shotgun, for God's sake. And so there's endless amounts of points you have to spend uh, while the guy who's like, I don't care, just give me shotgun and throw and I'm fine and I'm going to go and put the rest of it into my professor stuff then that, it very strongly lets you build those characters in the Call of Cthulhu way. Uh, the new edition, I think, breaks that a little bit by narrowing down the weapons uh, list uh, pretty handily. But again, you can't argue that there, there weren't enough weapons skills, um, and there is a real cognitive load problem with a lot of players, and it's not just a preference matter. It's a, I simply can't keep track of what my character's doing, what the GM is saying, and the things I might do all at the same time if the skill list is more than about 10 or 11 skills. And that seems to be the number where uh, you get a non-trivial number of people just breaking out and saying, nope, I can't hack it, I, I don't have the... I don't have the bandwidth here in this game, either because they're spending so much of their bandwidth on immersion or, or role-playing or whatever, or just because at some level, looking at a whole big forest of, of numbers and, 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 and names is not something that everyone can do, and those of us who can uh, tend to forget that. Some games use a subset of closely related skills in order to sort of tax a character who does a certain thing. So RuneQuest, for example, has... Um, somewhere around four or five or six different uh, spirit-related uh, uh, skills that a, uh, a shaman character needs to have. That does not assume that everybody in the party has one of those skills 
and that's their way of interacting with the spirit world. But that rather, if you want to interact with the spirit world, you need to put a bunch of points in all these different. You need to pay a price. Yeah, and so you need to invest in all of these slightly different things, and so it's a way of making a specialty costly as opposed to spreading a specialty among other uh, groups of people. Now, there are other ways that you could handle that. Another approach would be, uh, you know, you could design a game where there's one uh, skill called Spirit World, but it just costs you more uh, to invest. It costs in. triple the points. Right. And again, it's a question of whether you want to feel like a very finely detailed world that is being simulated, or if you want to uh, lessen the cognitive load on on players on on the paperwork and dealing with all of these different abilities and remembering which each of them applies to different situations and so that's a you know a classic again complexity equals immersion versus uh, abstraction uh, equals ease of use sort of calculation that you're going to want to make well on that on that note I think it would be very very skilled of us Ken. Uh, to head uh, through this commercial and see uh, what other completely unrelated thing might lie on the other side. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? The click of the remote and the momentary loading of the uh, app on our smart TV uh, or on our uh, device tell us that we've uh, entered the Cinema Hut, but this is a particularly streamy version of the Cinema Hut because Patreon backer Andrew Miller uh, asks us a uh, a somewhat topical question. Uh, in honor of the Criterion Channel's launch, what are the essentials of the collection? So uh, the service formerly known as Filmstruck, uh, which uh, briefly existed to the delight of uh, serious cineasts in, in the U.S., uh, went away about uh, four or five months ago because uh, it's because AT and T is idiots. Yes, uh, they decided uh, this is a rounding error to us. Let us destroy it. Yes, but one of the partners in that venture was uh, the Criterion Collection, uh, famous for their collection of uh, 
world cinema uh, DVDs. They've been available on various streaming platforms, and uh, but they decided to make a go of it themselves and have reproduced something that is very much like Filmstruck with the added bonus of being available to me here in Canada <laughs> because they've launched uh, with the idea that most of their stuff will be licensed in both places. I've found one film so far that is listed on their site that is not available in Canada. But that And so is the is the Criterion Channel before we get into the question, is the Criterion Channel just showing Criterion collection movies and that's it? It is not. That's their Um it is okay. also showing a range of uh, other titles because Criterion is very specific and um it doesn't include uh, a lot of classic Hollywood for example or a lot of uh really contemporary things. So they are right. also licensing stuff for uh shorter periods of time from other sources. Right. So this is the first little point I want to get to. Okay. If you are starting with your Criterion channel, the trick is to learn the difference between the Janus collection, uh, which is the core of their sort of permanent set of titles that they have uh, licensed to in perpetuity, and the things that they are temporarily licensing. So, for example, in their launch month, they have a series of uh, relatively rare Film noir. There's a couple of classics like The Big Heat, um, but also um, a bunch of relative rarities of uh, Columbia film noir. So they've licensed those uh, from Columbia Pictures, and that will last. Uh, I think they say that things will last uh, at least 30 days. Well, that's not not very long. No, it is not. Some things. I think most of the things their other licensed things will be there for like 90 days. Again, not a ton of time for a, a streaming service. So. The trick is to know the things that are there temporarily and jump on those first. So right. uh, I've now binged all of the uh, Columbia film noirs that I hadn't seen before. But that is not the remit of this no, uh, segment. No, uh, this is not the remit. That's the opposite of the remit, yes. really. Right now, right now, beloved Patreon backer Andrew Miller is tapping his foot saying, when are they going to get to the fireworks factory? Right. So uh, our task here is to... Uh, list, if you've never watched Criterion movies before or watched very few of them, which ones uh, do you start with? Um, the shortcut, a few years ago, uh, to celebrate their 50th anniversary of the Janus Collection, which started as a film distribution house, they released a, a line called Art House Essentials, which were basically Criterion DVDs with all the extras stripped out of them at cheaper prices. So the... Easy way, if you don't want to listen to Ken and Robin tell you which things to start with, is just to look at that list of 50 titles and watch those. Right, But yeah. we are now going to very quickly list a bunch of, these are just 101 basic things that are totally within down-the-line remit of uh, Criterion's World Cinema Archive. Uh, so there will be there will be no uh, telling us that you were surprised we left something out because uh, there's about 1,500 titles. Yeah, there's 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 um, a thousand titles that have numbers, and then God knows how many in the various box sets. Right. So back off. And they've got other know. things that are that they have the rights to that are n- not on disc. So right. so for example, they have all the Lone Wolf and Cup movies. They have the Zatoichi movies. They have all of the 60s Godzilla flicks. But we're not going to get to those. We're going to no. get to things like my favorite film of all time, Eight and a Half. Uh, this is uh, Federico Fellini's 1963 uh, movie about creative paralysis and uh, the world of dreams. And uh, it's sort of an autobiographical uh, film about uh, him and his own uh, p- particular uh, predilections in life. It's uh, uh, was later uh, Bob Fosse used that as the template for uh, 
all that jazz. Uh, Woody Allen, uh, does a version of it in Stardust Memories. Uh, it is full of delights and mysteries and eminently rewatchable. So that's eight and a half from 1963. Ken? Uh, my, and if we're doing favorite films of all time, by an odd coincidence, my favorite film of all time is also available from the good people at Criterion, and it is Carol Reads the Third Man, uh, which stars the lovely and talented Orson Welles as the titular third man. Uh, it is set in post-war Vienna, filmed in 1949, uh, actually filmed in 48 in post-war Vienna. It has a real, uh, a sense of place. Uh, the mise-en-scene is, is super there. And then Carol Reed goes ahead and films it like a crazy German expressionist, which he wasn't. Um, and so there's lots of great, uh, black and white shots. There's Dutch angles everywhere. Was it, uh, uh William Wyler that uh, legendarily sent Carol Reed a carpenter's level after seeing the movie? It was some <laughs> other, some other great director. That and, sounds like a um, William Wyler uh, move. He had a lockdown camera. And it's a, and it's a magnificent, uh, performance by Joseph Cotton, who's sort of the, the, the viewpoint character the protagonist and then Orson Welles of course is Orson Welles it's everybody working to the peak of their ability from a, a Graham Greene script it's it's just a, a, a literally perfect film there's not a problem with it a haunting zither score words that are literally only used to describe the third man if you ever see the words haunting zither score you just know they're talking about the third man it's um it, it's it's a it's a absolute pinnacle of pinnacles uh, my favorite movie and yes I have the Criterion edition of it oh I should say before we move on that a lot of these really core titles are also available uh, free uh, to subscribers to a another app called Canopy with a K, which you get through uh, your local library system if your local library system is enlightened enough to subscribe to is it. woke uh, to Canopy. So many of these uh, will be uh, available on that service as well. Um, my second favorite film of all time, uh, the Janus Collection is particularly strong with Japanese cinema, and so I'm going to say Yojimbo as my Akira Kurosawa film, uh, because I uh, would prefer to select a masterpiece of concision over his other masterpiece, uh, well, he's got a ton of masterpieces, but his, 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 his other masterpiece, I love that. His, his epic masterpiece. He's got a bunch of masterpieces. You can he's, have he's more a than man one. with a lot of masterpieces. Uh, but anyway, uh, Yojimbo, uh, which is an uncredited uh, remake of uh, Dashiell Hamlet's uh, Red Harvest with uh, with a, a Ronin who uh, gets gets to a small town uh, in in the bad times in Japan and decides to play off the two rival gangs against one another, uh, and was later uh, then uncreditedly remade as Fistful of Dollars and has been uh, remade and revisited uh, all sorts of times and to me is the uh, sort of template of the uh, uh, rugged, uh, stoic hero-slash-anti-hero uh, brilliantly portrayed by uh, Toshiro Mifune. Your next choice. Um, And, and I'm going to uh, jump off the listing my favorite films in order, uh, not least because I don't think that there is a uh, Criterion version of The Searchers, but... I will say that while we're sort of taking things as representative of giant movements, um, I would say that you cannot understand the indie film movement without understanding Richard Linkletter, and you can't understand Richard Linkletter without Slacker. And Slacker is not a, uh, a, a towering masterpiece on the level of the three films we've already discussed, but it is a film that is absolutely of a place, of a time, and of a sensibility. And it does the other thing that film is supposed to provide. Uh, film famously combines transcendence and immediacy. You are transcendently identifying with the great problems of the world and love and, and anger and war, but you're immediately right here watching Veronica Lake have a bad day or whatever it is. And Slacker is very much about the immediacy. It's about capturing a moment 
of a time in a culture that was probably going away even as Linklater was filming it. He, he saved it and made it a format that has basically influenced every aspect of popular culture since 1991 when he made it. It's, it's a great movie. It is a, it's a stream of consciousness in many ways and a stream of nonsense in many other ways. And you, when you watch it, you will say, Oh, I get, that's why Ken loves it. But, um, uh, but it's also, I think, a, a an underrated film document. And if you're looking at uh, art film, obviously the, the, the great towering classics that Robin and I are, are mentioning are, are there for a reason. But every so often there is something that I think is not a towering classic, but is just as important. And Slacker would be an example of that. Right. And and that's an example of something that's on disc and Criterion, not currently on the Criterion channel, probably will be at some point, uh, but not all the time because they have to make a licensing arrangement. Right. Um, here's something that will, that is in the core of their collection. We already mentioned German expressionism. So M by Fritz Lang from 1931. And that was what I would have mentioned if I had not chosen Slacker. So there we are. Uh, and that of course is the, uh, uh classic, a tale of a child murderer being uh, pursued uh, by the uh, criminal underworld who decide he's bad for business. And also they kind of hate, hate him anyway. Um, and it's uh, Peter Lorre's original breakout role uh, and uh, is the template uh, for a lot of uh, dark thrillers and, and what uh, metamorphosed later in hands, including Lang's, uh, into film noir. As I say, Searchers is not on it, but if you're looking for a John Ford film... Um, you cannot go too far wrong with Stagecoach, but a more interesting film, I think, and maybe not as great a film as Stagecoach, but I think a, a, a interestingly satisfying film because it combines procedural and, uh, film genius is My Darling Clementine, which is a movie about the, uh, gunfight at the OK Corral. Uh, it stars Henry Fonda and Victor Mature, of all people, and it is, um, uh, it, it is quite a movie, and it is one of those movies that you can watch it just as a straight up odor, a uh, straight up Western, but it's also, there's a lot of storytelling being done. And John Ford by then was the master of the Western there. Like I say, there's not a ton of Westerns in the criterion collections. One of the few uh, holes in that, uh, in, in that ovra. But uh, my darling Clementine, I think even more than stagecoach might be the one that you want to watch to sort of get a, a sense of what John Ford is up to. And once you know what John Ford is up to, hopefully you'll be able to take that knowledge to the searchers, which, like I say, is not a criterion film. Quickly going through uh, things that stand in for entire movements, we come to The Bicycle Thieves, Vittoria De Sica's movie from 1948, which is an exemplary version of Italian, Italian neorealism. neorealism. Uh, and, and therefore, I will not recommend it. I am somewhat of a skeptic of neorealism, but there is, uh, there are some ones that I, well, first of all, you have to see them, uh, a certain yeah, number of right, them. Right, they're required. It's, I'm not literate. saying don't watch them. Right. I'm saying. Not for you. But, um, but, not for but you. Bicycle Thieves, uh, is, uh, very sentimental, but not as cloyingly sentimental as some other ones, including some other ones by DeSica. So if you want right. to know what you're talking about when you're talking about, uh, neorealism, uh, check out the Bicycle Thieves from 1948. Uh, Ken, next one. I would say that, uh, again, there are a lot of uh, lovely uh, movies by Alfred Hitchcock, but maybe the one you want to watch is Rebecca. It's a quintessential women's movie in a way that Hitchcock uh, generally was bad at, but the uh, underlying story by Daphne du Maurier is very strong. Um, and it's about uh, Joan Fontaine discovering that uh, the wife she has replaced, the titular Rebecca, is more and less... Than she thought, and um, uh, Lawrence Olivier gives one of, the, I think, one of the great performances of his career as 
a weakling and it's, it's a hard thing to play as a good weakling and, uh, much harder than to play like a, a bossy cowboy or a lawman or whatever. And if you, if, if you can, uh, just take over the screen the way that Olivier does, uh, as, uh, uh De Winter, as Mr. De Winter, uh, Maxim, Maxim, uh, then, um, then, then you got something. So it's, it's a terrific acting thing. George Sanders, a friend of the podcast, George Sanders shows up at his oiliest. Um, and it's, it's a terrific story. It's, it's a, it's a great set piece. Um, it's endlessly rewatchable, which is, I guess, one of the criteria for all these films. Um, and it's, it's Hitchcock, but it's not just the sort of straight up, uh, everybody's Hitchcock. It, it's a Hitchcock you can drop when people say, what's your favorite Hitchcock? And then they'll have to rub their chin and go, Oh, you impress me, sir. Back to rounding up different movements. Uh, I'm going to go to the French new wave. <laughs> Better you uh, than Jean-Luc Godard's <laughs> band of outsiders is on Criterion Disc, but not currently on the Criterion channel. So I'm instead going to say Breathless, uh, which is uh, much more iconic, <laughs> even though you might find yourself observing that it droops a little in the middle when they're just hanging out in the apartment together. Uh, so it's the uh, quintessential story of uh, an American uh, girl and a young French a uh, tough guy, and because he's a tough guy, there might be a little bit of doom in their relationship, but uh, it uh, was very innovative in its sense of giving you time to spend time with characters in a sort of a, uh, a realistically framed uh, sense of time in the middle, and uh, has that sense of uh, romanticism uh, that will make you want to uh, get in a time machine and move to uh, Paris in 1961. And uh, uh, it is... Uh, Godard, uh, who is still working, uh, later becomes much more doctrinaire and squeezes all of the pleasure out of uh, most of his uh, later films. <laughs> Ruins it for everyone. Uh, but uh, but Breathless uh, still has that sense of, uh, of romanticism about it. Next up, Ken. Now, I, I want to talk about another French movie, but before that, I want to ask, way back in the early days, they had some John Woo movies on in Criterion editions that are now out of print and you can never buy them ever. I assume that they're also not on the channel, the killer and hard boiled. Uh, they're not, they have an earlier Wu Shao film that they probably only have for a brief time, but they don't have the right. Wu. Okay. So obviously you should watch the killer and hard boiled, but I'm not going to talk about those because they're not available. And even if they were available, they're not available, but there is a, a French, uh, a film. So I'm uh, staying uh, level with Robin here, but it is a thriller because I am a lover of the genre and it is called the wages of fear. And it's by Henri Georges Clouseau. And it is just distilled suspense. It is such a good movie that when William Friedkin remade it, he could only make a movie almost as good. (laughs) That's how good the wages of fear is. And it's just about guys who are driving a truck loaded with sweaty dynamite and nitroglycerin over a mountain road. And they're basically just at the ass end of the universe and the uh, ass end of uh, industrial capitalism. And they're the lucky stiffs who get to drive dynamite over a rocky road. And it is just an insanely good movie. It is pure suspense. This is this is a movie that um, you could not believe guys in a truck could be that good. And it is. It's just a it's a it's a masterpiece of. Emotion, I guess, is what I'm saying. But it is, it is a, it is a seminal thriller. It is a, a, a French uh, a director, so you get some points for that. And it's just an amazing piece of work. It's just a, a, a staggering piece of, of film. The Janus Collection is also deep uh, stocked on the works of Michael Powell, or the director uh, half of the Powell Pressburger directing producing team. And uh, you can't go uh, wrong with uh, pretty much any of them, but I'm going to pick as the archetypal one, The Red Shoes, the uh, beautiful Technicolor ballet procedural uh, from uh, 1948. 
and uh, uh, Martin Scorsese uh, is also deep in the tank for the works of Michael Powell, and you can see a lot of his uh, uh, color scheme uh, that will then go and influence uh, Scorsese's work in uh, that uh, classic uh, dance movie. Yeah, if, if I were going to pick a, a, a Powell movie, it would be uh, Peeping Tom, but yes, uh, Red Shoes is also super great. Another great uh, Criterion film that is both uh, satisfying as a procedural and also uh, makes you think in the way of a great film is uh, Gillo Pontecorvo's just nakedly political, but weirdly not nakedly one-sided uh, film, The Battle of Algiers, about the uh, a war in Algeria of independence uh, between the Algerian rebels and the French uh, colonists. And it is a movie that very unflinchingly shows a guerrilla war in progress, complete with atrocities on all sides, and demonstrates a, a sort of a very interesting compromise between rooting for a revolution and accepting the horror of the thing you're rooting for. And it's also just a magnificent movie. And the actor that plays the uh, French paratroop general, uh, General Massou, uh, Colonel Mathieu in the film is, uh, a, he's, he's, it's a riveting performance. And if, you know, if he'd been a Hollywood actor, he would have been in 8 million cop movies. But uh, the, the, uh, the film is, is sort of, uh, it's neorealist in the way that the Sika is, but it's elevated because it's not about a bicycle thief. It's about a, a bloody revolution. And it has a lot of just scenes that even in 1966 uh, were were probably pretty controversial. And even now you watch them and you're like, I cannot believe someone just shot that and laid it out there in that sort of clinical style. It's uh, Ponacorvo uh, does a lot of other things uh, in the movie as well that are sort of once you've seen it two or three times, you can sort of, oh, I get it. That's that's why you framed it that way. So in that way, it's like watching a really great documentary. You see that even you know, movies that are about ostensible truth are constructed narratives. This is also a constructed narrative, but it's a, a narrative that is constructed with less political slant than you think from a movie that has an overt political slant like this one does. It, it, it is sort of watching it as, as it, um, it doesn't undercut itself, but it informs itself by questioning itself in the film. And it is all the more effective for that because you come out saying, well, he gave the French a fair, a fair shake, but we certainly root for the Algerians. And it's, uh, it, it's quite a film in many ways, as well as just being a pulse pounder, uh, when you're watching it. Uh, with a driving score yeah. by Ennio Marconi, who's, uh, the, the king of the driving scores, and this is the most driving of his scores. I'm going to quickly rattle through a, a quick list of things because we're running out of time. Uh, but, uh, if you want to start with the works of, uh, Japanese director Yashizuro Ozu, who is famous for, uh, the serenity and calm and in the, uh, sort of, uh, BS undergrad version of it is the opposite of Kurosawa in that he is, uh, supposedly, uh, more quintessentially Japanese, whereas Kurosawa is more Western. That's nonsense, but, uh, many of his films are great. I would start with Floating Weeds from 1958, which is a remake of his earlier silent film, but a fading actor who, uh, meets his former mistress and son, and there's a sense of, um, sort of, um, melancholy and about sort of the end of the line of a creative career and has a, a beautiful color sense. Uh, fans of uh, the medieval will want to start their Bergman uh, with uh, the seventh seal, uh, famous for its scene of uh, uh, Max von Sydow's uh, knight playing uh, chess with death on a beach. Uh, and it's all about uh, the uh, 
dealing with the the plague and uh, the very different medieval uh, world uh, view uh, toward death as uh, we have in our society. And and also, Seventh Seal is one of those movies that I think will really, if you're not used to watching shots be constructed, it will let you do that because every shot in that movie is so amazing. You assume it's a painting instead of a shot and they're, they're just built so clearly that it's sort of, you can take what you get from the seventh seal and you can use that when you're watching other films that are either worse at it or doing a faster or more oblique job of, of constructing their shots. It's a, it's like a man who shot Liberty Valance in that way that it's very clearly doing what it's doing. So you get to see sort of best of breed, but without any sort of, um, uh, a folder all around it. You just see a, a perfectly composed shot time after time after time. Uh, Agnes Varda, who uh, passed away recently, is uh, an incredibly influential filmmaker in a way that I think uh, is not necessarily fully noted. Uh, for example, her uh, first film, La Pointe Court, for 1955, is a film that people are still remaking today in that it takes a couple of professional actors and places them in a situation in a real community with real people. And so it's a mix of... Uh, sort of a documentary slice of life portrait of a place, but with enough narrative to carry you through. And every year at every film festival, yeah, you're going to see 10 to 20 films that are doing what she did uh, in 1955 <laughs> well. and then never repeated because her films mostly don't repeat themselves. Uh, for uh, weird artsy science fiction, go to Stalker from 1979, Andrew Tarkovsky's very influential uh, film. This is slow cinema, so beware of that. But it's, yeah, it is. it's about uh, a team of people uh, penetrating the uh, the zone in an unspecified uh, uh, place and time. But it seems kind of post-apocalyptic, and there's something weird and mystical going on there, and something dangerous. And this is the template for annihilation uh, and a bunch of other things as well. If you want to see the roots of Jean uh, Wu, uh, check out Le Samurai by Jean-Pierre Melville. Uh, some of the Melville stuff is on the Criterion channel. Uh, the stuff that isn't uh, may also be on Canopy from another distributor, but Le Samurai is on the channel. Uh, this is Alain Delon's existential alienated hitman, uh, sort of uh, sleepwalking uh, through a hit and its consequences and has an incredible sense of romanticism and uh, very clearly is the inspiration for uh, big slices of uh, John Woo's The Killer. And, it, and it's also, um, because this is one that I've I, I've seen and loved and I think own on Criterion, is a, uh, it, it's also just a really great uh, uh, thriller about a hitman. I mean, it, it, it in addition to having the emotional core that you talk about and, and being uh, beautifully shot, it's also a terrific procedural in that, he does not scant on on story, and he doesn't scant on on having his hitman be a hitman. Uh, there, there's a lot of really great sort of you know you, you hate to say techno thriller about something set in 1967, but there's a a strong sense of of Delon interacting with the technology of the city as he as he makes his hit, and it's it's very cool in in that way as well. Um, they also have uh, pretty much all of Francois Truffaut. Uh, this is not necessarily his most archetypal film, but it's a Film noir uh, tribute crime film, and so it's one I'm going to pick. Uh, Shoot the Piano Player from 1962, uh, based on a David Goodis novel about a uh, a guy who's been uh, wrecked by tragedy in his past uh, and is now uh, just playing the piano in a sleazy bar, but uh, his past still isn't quite finished with him. Uh, German New Wave, I would pick um, Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant by uh, Rainer Werner Fassbinder from 1972. Uh, this is a chamber drama about a uh, 
trio of arch lesbians who are mean to each other uh, for the uh, <laughs> space with runtime run and is a great entry point into... By, by, by which Robin means they are arch, they are not in charge of other lesbians. N- yes, it's it, there's no yeah. hyphen there. Um, <laughs> right. And, uh, but it's a, a, a great pathway into Fassbender's uh, understanding and reconstruction of the Hollywood melodrama uh, and his rehabilitation of it of, of being a form that is uh, worthy of interest and attention, uh, of course, because uh, it is usually about and for women and therefore uh, was disregarded. And finally, uh, if uh, you want to go uh, into the uh, uh, Russian cinema, which I've only touched in with uh, Tarkovsky, uh, and in a silent cinema, there's a bunch of silent films, and of course, perhaps the most famous of them all, uh, most innovative, is Battleship Potemkin, uh, with, uh, which brought fast intercutting uh, into uh, the lexicon. And if you haven't seen it, you can look at it and then see how many other people have swiped it over the years, and it's not just right. De Palma in The Untouchables. So anyway, that's just scratching the surface. We could do a, a 201 and a 301 and an Undiscovered Gems. and But uh, if you haven't seen any of those, uh, this will get you going. Yep. And so uh, it's time for us to get going uh, through this commercial to see what lies on the other side. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive Through. Protect this podcast from launchpad mishaps by joining such Patreon backers as... Aryan Poutsma. Brendan Clority. Drew Eichels. And Daniel Markwig. So now it's time for Ken and Robin to recycle audio. We're going to start a series where we're uh, recycling the audio of a couple of panels that we did at uh, KarkosaCon in uh, Poland. And uh, the first one uh, is uh, mostly Ken. It's about uh, Robert W. Chambers and his work uh, and arising from Ken's annotations on the uh, uh, previously advertised or soon to be advertised The King in Yellow Annotated Edition. Uh, so this one is us talking about uh, Chambers uh, in particular and his influences. You discovered uh, when you uh, accepted the assignment from Arc Dream to uh, do the annotations for uh, the text that uh, there is virtually no scholarship right. uh, surrounding Robert W. Chambers. Um, so uh, <laughs> how do you want to uh, go 
at this, do you want to go through your process or do you want to start with uh, the sort of a historical beginnings of the, the influences on chambers? Right. I mean, I, I guess just really, really fast, since we have an audience, honest, uh, how many people have, uh, have read The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers? So uh, about half. So let me let me just begin then with a really brief uh, overview of, of, of what it is and what he was. Uh, Robert W. Chambers was born in 1865 in Brooklyn. Uh, he was, uh, his father was a lawyer. He was a professional class. Uh, his family history was connected to upstate New York, uh, where they had property. And, uh, he was, uh, the very characteristic sort of spoiled kid. Didn't know what he wanted to do. He wanted to be a, a sculptor and he wanted to be an engineer. And he discovered sort of by accident, that he had a gift for art, for, for drawing. And when he was trying to be a sculptor, he discovered he didn't have a gift for sculpting, but he could draw out his, uh, his uh, layouts and things. So the, the, an- the anecdote is that he and his friend Charles Dana Gibson, who were at the, um, uh, the, the art school in, uh, in New York at the time, both submitted uh, drawings uh, to Life magazine, and Gibson's was rejected, and Chambers's was accepted. And so on the strength of that and on the strength of his experiences in um, uh, the Manhattan School of the Art, he went to the Academy Julian in Paris in 1886 and stayed in Paris for seven years. Uh, Julian's was a preparatory academy that got you into the Ecole de Beaux-Arts, which was the great uh, place where you learned how to do proper art from proper French artists, uh, legendary figures like Jérôme and Bougereau and people like that. And so he got into the Ecole, he uh, exhibited at the Salon, which is the sort of top honor that you can have as an artist, and then came back to America in 1893 and became an illustrator for Life and uh, uh, other magazines and discovered that writing was easier than drawing and uh, took some of the sketches that he had written in Paris and uh, uh, shaped them and wrote new things, uh, uh, padded it out into a novel called uh, In the Quarter, uh, which uh, sold okay, and then he wrote his second work, which was a collection of short stories called The King in Yellow, which was like nothing he wrote before and very little like anything he wrote after, in that it was cosmic horror avant la lettre. It was a supernatural uh, horror of rationality. Uh, it, it was heir to Poe. It was very strongly influenced by Maupassant, who was the French master of horror at the time that he was in Paris, so he would have been reading Maupassant in the newspapers at the time. But it was very much his own uh, voice and his own concerns, borrowing a few scenic elements from Ambrose Bierce and then turning them into a collection of stories. And of that collection, there are ten stories in it. Uh, four of them are part of what we think of as the King Yellow mythos, uh, the Repair of Reputations, the Mask, um, uh, In the Court of the Dragon, and the Yellow Sign, and one poem, Casilda's Song, which opens the collection. There, there are also four fairly conventional love stories set in Paris, uh, one of which is a sort of Edgar Allan Poe sort of love story, but is still, there's no overt supernatural element. It's just a perfectly written vignette of sort of moral horror, not of supernatural horror. There's one sort of self-indulgent bunch of prose poetry, and there is a excellent uh, 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 story uh, set in Brittany called The Demoiselle Dice, which has a sub-character and a third string character named Hastur, which is why anyone uh, pays attention to it now, although it's actually a pretty good story. Uh, following that, 
Uh, that book came out, sold very well, got excellent reviews. He decided to become a full-time writer and very rapidly discovered that there was more of a market for historical adventure fiction and romances than there was for supernatural horror collections, a truth that was as true in 1895 as it is now. And he also discovered that he had a very great gift for, in addition to nature writing, which was, I think, his real strength, for sort of facile dialogue and um, uh, conventional uh, romance stories of the sort that appealed to uh, what was called the shop girl uh, in America. So it was the shop girl romances he became the king of, wrote a series of them between 1906 and 1919, most of which hit the uh, bestseller list, some of which cracked the top five. Became in 1908 the most read writer in America, made huge amounts of money from his uh, fiction, uh, built his ancestral house in upstate New York into a fine uh, collection of uh, armor and antiques and, and things that he liked, and never really bothered to write horror again. Every now and again he would try to write sort of supernatural adventure stuff with generally parlous results. Uh, Robin uh, is even downer on Chambers than I am, I find that there is uh, material like The Harbor Master that I think repays examination and um, uh, uh, Maker of Moons, which uh, two-thirds of it is excellent, and then the last third is terrible. But, uh, you know, it does very well. And there's a collection of stories set in Brittany, The Mystery of Choice, uh, much of which is actually pretty good. But he also wrote 80 other books that no one should have to read. (laughs) Uh, And he died in 1933. His son was uh, an, an alcoholic, probably had other issues, let the house basically fall to ruin. All of his letters were lost. All of his correspondence was lost. His library was lost. With the result that this guy, who was a best-selling author, left no trace behind him in the documentary record, really. And so, because he had fallen out of fashion, as bestsellers very often do, uh, no one bothered to write any critical appraisal of his work, with the exception of a guy named Lee Weinstein, who wrote one piece uh, he actually wrote it about three times, but he first published it in 1976, and it was the only actual critical look at every story in the uh, King and Yellow uh, as uh, it relates to itself. So everything else has either been part of a survey or a brief introduction to the fiction by a scholar of horror or at least a collector of horror like E.F. Blyler. So that was it. That was my virgin field, as as you say. Right. And Lovecraft, of course, refers to him uh, as briefly as he does to everybody else right. in supernatural horror and literature. And it's uh, because of that and then August Durlis' incorporation of uh, Chambers' uh, stuff into more Cthulhu mythosy stuff that is why we're here talking about this now. That he probably Would you agree that Chambers would be completely forgotten had... Uh, Lovecraft not noted him. I, I think that there is a there is every reason to think that that in in 1927, if you did not show up in Lovecraft's supernatural horror and literature, your chances of getting back out of the oh he wrote a good ghost story once oblivion is very slim. For example, uh, a vastly superior writer on every metric, William Hope Hodgson, who doesn't show up in supernatural horror. Am I right? Or I'm not sure. Maybe he does. Sure about that. But um, uh, but but Hobson, uh, for example, has had a much harder uh, walk back to fame. Whereas, thanks to Lovecraft, uh, people uh, read back through the references in Whisper in Darkness. They read back through Supernatural Horror, and they do come across the King in Yellow, and he gets a brief uh, renaissance every you know twenty years or so. And then uh, in two thousand and fourteen, uh, Nick Pizzolatto. Uh, borrowed Chambers' references and put them into the first season of True Detective, 
which I think sort of has inspired and kickstarted the latest uh, bunch of uh, Carcosan excitement. So speaking of things that were kickstarted, uh, the annotations uh, uh, begin. I, uh, I, I guess the first question then we want to look at is uh, the influences on Chambers. What is Chambers uh, drawing from? And we've mentioned them already. There's uh, Bierce, uh, there's Maupassant, uh, and uh, you also made an interesting discovery about Black Stars, which we'll get yes, to. Right. But what is the influence of Bierce on Chambers. I mean, first and foremost, Bierce is where the, na- the name Carcosa comes from. The name Hastur comes from Bierce. And the name Holly, as in Lake of Holly, also comes from Bierce. Uh, Bierce's Holly is an astrologer or a, a mystic of some sort who provides the uh, epigraphs for uh, the death of Halpin Fraser and for uh, uh, inhabitant of Carcosa. Uh, Hastur is the god of shepherds in a story called Haida the Shepherd. And Carcosa is a ruined city in the titular inhabitant of Carcosa. Uh, the, then that is Beers. Beers wrote them like he wrote a lot of ghost stories and, uh, horror stories as a way of sort of, um, uh, exposing human ambition as feckless and pointless, pretty much, and human, uh, moral beliefs as, uh, either imaginary or not stark enough. Um, and uh, Bierce's sensibility was not Chambers' sensibility, but when Chambers was writing uh, The King in Yellow Stories, uh, Bierce's collection, Soldiers and Civilians, had just come out. It came out in 1892 in both America and Britain. So uh, Chambers may have even read it in Paris or on the boat back, um, but he was definitely inspired by Bierce to say, oh, Ambrose Bierce has done a collection of horror stories. I can do a collection of horror stories. And they're both Americans, they're both writing at about the same time, but Bierce seems much more clearly to be uh, writing uh, Americana, yeah. uh, whereas Chambers uh, has a European focus, a lot of his stories are set in Europe, and there's sort of a, a, a brutal harshness of the West, that whether it's actually literally in the West mm-hmm. or not, that is part of, uh, of Bierce, so that, uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, a beer story could have just as easily been adapted in uh, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs as a Jack London story. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's sort of a, a, a horror punchline aspect to it. They're, short, they're very short, and they're punchy, and they're kind of a, a brutal end. Uh, and Maupassant uh, has one overtly uh, horrific supernatural story, but a lot of his other stories are also... Uh, they're, Weird tales without the supernatural. So, what is? How would you identify the influence of Maupassant on? I mean, Chambers? many of them are the sort of stories where you can read it as a supernatural story or as not a supernatural story. Uh, and uh, he's also a big. Uh, ut- he utilizes the unreliable narrator a great deal. Uh, the story he has about four or five stories called one version or other of. A Madman? Am I Mad? Diary of a Madman. Tale of a Madman. Madness. And, uh, and so in French they're all au fou something. But um, uh, he is a he's sort of inventing or perfecting the unreliable narrator through his uh, career and not to be that guy, but he was also uh, suffering from tertiary syphilis throughout his entire writing career and was eventually institutionalized for it in 1893. Chambers may have met Maupassant. They may have frequented the same cafe, he name-checked the Café Vachette, where Maupassant was a, you know, constantly hung out. And we know that Maupassant was friends with Paul Verlaine, and that 
and we know from an interview that Chambers gave much later that he and Paul Verlaine were friends. So you can certainly imagine, certainly he's reading Maupassant and the Gil Blas and other uh, uh, fiction in Paris, and he may have met the guy and recognized the pernicious influence of the yellow sign on uh, his acquaintance Maupassant. And certainly when he's reading the fiction, you can see that the same sort of concerns of, is this narrator crazy? Is this narrator living a supernatural experience? Has this narrator just hit his head? Um, what's going on? That's the sort of thing Mopassan is also exploring. And then Mopassan does have stories that have a, a, a strongly, I mean, where the supernatural explanation is the more logical one. There's a story called The Apparition, which is basically uh, a sort of proto-phantom hitchhiker story about a man who agrees to go meet a woman who's pestering his friend. And he goes to meet this woman and um, she asks him to comb her hair, and for reasons known only to Maupassant, he does. And then he discovers that she's uh, a ghost and flees the house and then wakes up and sees hairs in his comb. And that's the sort of dun-dun-dun right. moment. Uh, and, and through through Beers and uh, and uh, one of the lesser chamber stories and through Maupassant, the uh, twist, the person I interacted with turned out to be a ghost, yeah. is a pretty frequent uh, template. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned Verlaine, and Ver, uh, if he knew Verlaine at that point, he knew him in a period of steep decline, right? Yeah, uh, which is uh, sort of suggestive of, like, for example, the unreliable narrator of uh, the repair of reputations. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. The feel of a leather cover under the hand, the smell of paper, and the uh, beautiful look of typography tell us that we've once more entered the book hut. Uh, this is uh, yet another segment where I initially thought it was going to be consulting a cultist, did my research, found out it's more about books, really, than occultism. There's maybe a, a bit of an occult angle to it. There's, but, a, uh, there's a soupçon. A, a little bit. But I think mostly this is about uh, uh, writing up a forgery and of, and where it came from. Uh, it, it sort of retroactively uh, gains a, a cult uh, meaning later. So uh, Raphael Papst, Patreon backer, uh, wants to know about uh, Jacob Ilive uh, and the Forged Book of Jasser, uh, which is influenced by William Durham and his doctrine of astrotheology. 
so, uh, I guess we, do we start with the, with the book and then, uh, do the astrotheology as a flashback? Um, it's, it's a, it's a miracle of huts, the book yeah. hut. Um, I think we should start with the book though, since it is the book hut. Right. So 1751, uh, Jacob Elev, who is a, uh, printer in the, uh, in Britain released a, a book that was, uh, it was translated by Elswin, who is the eighth century Archbishop of Canterbury. And this was a long lost book of uh, of the Bible, uh, the book of Jasher, uh, written by uh, the aforementioned, uh, the eponymous Jasher. Uh, he was the son of Caleb, and Caleb, of course, was uh, part of uh, Moses' crew. He was OG Moses. Right. He was one of the spies that went into the promised land. Right. Now, we're talking about a forged book here, but I'm not sure forged is ex- exactly the right word, because that implies that someone was fooled. It also implies that, that you attempted to get it past anyone, which yes. again, I'm not sure. Jay, I mean, I don't think there was either intent or outcome that anyone was fooled until later on when people decided, we just want to be fooled so bad, we'll even be fooled by the Book of Jasher. Right. Because this included what we in the uh, in the hoax trade refer to as a tip-off, because although allegedly translated in the 8th century by the Archbishop of Canterbury of the time, it was written in the style of the King James Bible. Yeah. And uh, a wee bit of an anachronism there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, who was Jacob Illive and, and what, what, why did he decide, uh, that the world needed this book? Okay. Jacob Illive, as you say, was a, was a printer. He, he owned a type foundry and sold it a bit. He also was, uh, sort of a, a, a rabble rouser, a bit of a troublemaker. He would go and, and give speeches, um, and then he would print the speech. So it would be, he would rent out, um, the, the printer's hall or wherever. And he would go and he would give a speech and his speeches would be about why other people are jerks. For example, the bishops. And he would give a speech on a natural religion, which was the sort of the, the proto deism or not proto straight up deism of the time. And, and deism for those listening along at home is deism is the belief that while there is a creator, uh, that's all he did. God made the world. And then he said, done with that. Well done, everybody going to go um, uh, hang out. And that's that's the only right. part of it. So it solves the problem of a, a benevolent deity uh, who could intervene but doesn't. Right, yes. The, the, the only thing the deity is necessary to do is, is create the world. And the uh, other things that he believed were that the church had too much power. And if you look into the book of Jasher, it turns out, oh, the, the Levites, the priestly uh, tribe, are always bad. And Moses had to murder a bunch of people in order to get the priests of Levi established as a priesthood. And Miriam spoke out against Moses, so he puts her in jail. And uh, Moses is a So jerk. Moses does, does a heel turn in this. Yeah, Moses does a heel turn. It's very big. And it's a... It's a political argument against the Church of England and against churches in general, uh, which is part of uh, Jacob Illive's problem. People who knew him considered him, according to printer John Nichols, somewhat disordered in mind, which on the one hand might be that John Nichols was a respectable fellow and anyone who said such harsh, ugly things about Moses was disordered in mind. Or maybe he was like that guy who you know, who's always on about something. And you're thinking, well... He's a fine guy as long as you don't get him off on Moses. Right. Then he's trouble. And, and we both know enough about publishing to stroke our chins and go, sounds like a printer. Sounds like a printer. And this was standard publishing behavior, by the way. Uh, uh, someone would preach a sermon, and they'd be so happy with their sermon, they'd have it bound as a book. And then uh, Jacob Illive would read their book and say, this book is a pharaoh of nonsense. 
So he would go hire out a hall, give his own speech and bind it the exact same way as a response to slash take the piss out of a bound sermon. And so he had a, uh, someone that was uh, a guy named Henry Felton did a sermon about how after the resurrection, you'll be able to be there with your mom and your dad and everyone will be still just the same as they were. And he did a speech against that and said, this is all bogus nonsense. There's no earthly reason to think that's going to happen. It's, a, it's and, a theological rap battle, basically. It is. It's a theological diss battle. And when he printed the book of Jasher, um, pretty much immediately everyone said, Oh, baloney. And then in 1754, he did another pamphlet to uh, rebut a preacher. And his pamphlet was so blasphemous that he was uh, put in jail for it. And uh, he was put in jail at Clerkenwell and then came out of Clerkenwell uh, three years later and wrote a pamphlet about prison reform at Clerkenwell. <laughs> so well, he was write what guy. you know. Yes. And uh, the, the jail term probably broke his health uh, because that's what happens. And uh, he died not too long thereafter. He died about uh, five years after getting out of jail. So that's that's the sad truth of Jacob Illive's life. But while he was there, he uh, annoyed everyone and printed this uh, terrific book of Jasher that we all love. Right. Um, so, and as alluded to in, in uh, Raphael's question, one of the uh, sources that he drew on in uh, his uh, promulgating his, his deist uh, theology uh, was the work of William Durham, uh, who is working a couple of generations uh, behind him, I guess. And he wrote books uh, entitled Physico-Theology, in 1713, astrotheology in 1714, and uh, uh, later on, Christotheology in 1730. And I gather uh, that this combines scientific observation with a theological argument that God exists, the universe is good, here's how it works, and, uh, you know, he created a, a world machine, here's a mechanism, and here's a bunch of observations that I've had uh, about uh, the stars and, and, uh, and physics and so forth that uh, are both useful to know on their own and also prove that God exists. Right. That basically this, this is the, the teleological argument for God, which is something happened. Someone must have created it. Therefore God and the immense quality and intricacy and beauty of the something. And the fact that people live in the something and are capable of apprehending the something is taken as sort of the clincher to the teleological argument that sure. Random stuff could have created random stuff, but Look how we are exactly suited to know about Planck's constant. And yeah. if Planck's constant was just a tiny bit one way or the other, there'd be nothing. There'd be a slurry. So someone must Would have. Would eggs be as useful in cooking if, if there weren't a reason for it? No. God no. must have done that. Exactly. Would Jessica Alba be so beautiful if God had not designed her? Of course not. And, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so all of those, uh, arguments, Aquinas said, well, they're fine arguments, but he put them fifth out of five of the arguments for God, so you can tell what he thought. But uh, as we discovered more and more wonderful stuff about the world, and astrotheology specifically is a book about cool stuff I've found with my enormous telescope, the fact that there is beauty and glory out there in the heavens just sitting around was thought to be yet more evidence that God is just a fecund creator of beauty and glory, and therefore he must be beautiful and glorious, ergo. Right, and among the things that Durham discovered was he... Came up with a uh, a very accurate measure of the speed of sound, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, good for him, gold star for that. So this seems like uh, so far, you will, listeners will have noticed uh, nothing really occultic about this. But uh, through the power of back projection uh, in the 30s, uh, Rosicrucians, our old friends, the the Rosicrucians, uh, uh, as part of their duty of being the most boring occultists, 
some of them, at least, I guess, decided that the book of Jasher uh, is an inspired work, uh, which is a great way of saying that, although this is provably nonsense, uh, deeper down, uh, no one would have created this nonsense if it wasn't important. <laughs> that because the nonsense is beautiful, its creator must be beautiful and good. Yes, exactly. Yes. Points for consistency. Uh, yeah, so the 1829, someone had reprinted the Book of Jasher on the grounds that uh, we're in an era, I guess, in the 1820s of new religious ferment, and let's try selling some copies of a pretend gospel or a pretend uh, a book of the Bible. And uh, again, it was uh, howled down in a storm of controversy. And that probably is what was remembered by the good folks of the Rosicrucians. There is an argument that uh, William Blake was influenced by the Book of Jasher as well when it came time to write the Book of Urizen, that he sort of said, I'm doing a fake Bible book. Let's see if, oh, the Book of Jasher is full of fake Bible. Let's do that. Um, I don't know that I buy it a thousand percent. I think it's more along the lines that um, Blake already was feeling the same sorts of anti-nomian, anti-clerical, pro-female uh, ideology as the Book of Jasher promulgated and said, uh, why not make my own book of the Bible that does that? He probably would have known about the book of Jasher, but I don't know making it a model. I don't think that they've made that argument. Also, the book of Jasher is very sort of boring Carl Sagany, and it's like, oh, what happens is that the time of, of that era, the Red Sea would dry up a lot and people could just walk across. And so you don't need a miracle. That's what happened. Oh, man is just a fruity berry that grows in the Sinai. And it's, it's that sort of, thing that managed to ruin both miracles and science. Yeah. When I was a lieutenant of Moses, I had to walk six miles to cross the Red Sea. Exactly. And it was muddy and stuck to my feet. And that was, and that's one of the things in the book of Jasher is that it's anti-miraculous because it's like everything that you think is miraculous is explained by good old science. And so again, that's another argument against Blake really being influenced by it because Blake was all about miracles. And he thought we just didn't even pay attention to 90% of the miracles that were happening right now. There's ghosts in your feet. Well, it makes sense that the most boring occultists would uh, gravitate to the most boring made up book of the Bible. Oh yes, absolutely. And again, the actual book of Jasher, the real book of Jasher probably isn't boring at all. We just don't have it in the book of Joshua. Uh, there, right after it says uh, the sun stood still and the moon stayed in its place. And it's like, Oh, no one's going to believe this. Is this not written in the book of Jasher, in the Sefer HaYashar, which means the book of the upright man or the book of the just man? Uh, but there's no reason to say someone might not have been named Jasher in the hopes that they would become an upright or just man or taken the name Jasher later on. So there could have been some dude wandering around in Moses' times named Jasher. We just don't know about him. But the fact that this book is sort of mentioned and quoted in... Joshua and Samuel implies that, yeah, there was at one point a poetical or, or chronicler type book of, of the just man that the uh, scribal authorities who took Joshua and Samuel down used as one of their sources. And, and we've lost it because we've lost a zillion billion books from ancient times anyway. And so that's that's where the sort of the secret origin of the book of Jasher. And if you could find a real book of Jasher, that would be neat. But the book of Jasher it didn't even fool people in 1751. You had to wait until the 1930s for people to be dumb enough to be fooled by the Book of Jasher. <laughs> well, uh, if there's one thing that never fools our listeners, it's the fact that this uh, podcast is typically around an hour in length. And if you've been looking at your watches, uh, you will have noted that uh, if you even own a watch, that uh, yeah. we've we've about reached that time. So I think uh, it's uh, 
time for us to go and uh, forge some uh, some texts of our own. Forge ahead, as it were. Yeah, and uh, meet you back next week when everything we say will be totally true, no nonsense, no bunkum. Uh, you know this podcast, folks. Is it not written so in the book of Jasher? Stuff I mean, once again, been talked about. It's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask the Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Build your skills alongside such Patreon backers as... Graham Wills. Jack Gulick. Jacob Ansari. Darren Bretz. And Brian Thomas. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Walrus Revenge. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>